Welcome to Hair, Hair, Hair. I'm Josh Tyson. We've got a special episode for you today. We're talking with Walt Young. A retired Denver barber of 62 years, Walt owned the Uppercut on East Colfax, where he served a very diverse clientele. Boxers, busboys, politicians, they all waited their turn for a haircut with Walt. Walt is also a painter, and out of his studio in the back of the Uppercut, he painted portraits of the people living on the streets near his shop. Walt is a legend, not only for his painting and barbering, but also for his commentary. At 90 years old, his byline continues to show up on newspaper editorials. Lastly, I should tell you that Walt is family. He's my wife's grandfather, which factors into the conversation that you're about to hear. Let's talk to Walt. So, well, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Walt, uh, I have some of your articles here that you've written for the local papers here in Denver over the years. Uh, I know you love the quote from Mark Twain about everything changes except barbers, the ways of barbers, and the surroundings of barbers. These never change. What, what does that mean to you? Like, what, is, what are the ways of barbers in your mind? Well, uh, Mark Twain says it a lot better than I could. Uh, uh, he really uh, defined barbershops and, and the ways of barbers uh, that evolve... Uh, from working in barbershops and that sort of a social, commercial atmosphere. And uh, they have sort of a mystique about them. They're sort of a combination of a commercial and a social enterprise. Uh, uh, there was a guy who wrote a book, uh, uh, Ray Oldenburg, or Ber- Ray Oldenberger perhaps, called The Great Good Place. And he defined how uh, businesses that are social in nature uh, serve the community in ways where people meet and uh, converse in an open atmosphere, uh, a non-hierarchical, non-hierarchical atmosphere, along with other businesses like that, uh, neighborhood bars, uh, things like that. And so barbershops are as much a social institution as they are a commercial uh, enterprise. And uh, people like me, uh, who was a barber for 62 years, soak up a lot of thought from all kinds of different people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess Aristotle would say it was induction uh, synthesis and dissemination. That's why barbers talk a lot. We have to get rid of some of this stuff. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we get overloaded with uh, information and uh, opinion and all that. But always in barber shops, a friendly sort of an ambiance. Uh, there are rarely ever are arguments in barbershops. People uh, just don't do it. It's just part of the part of the atmosphere. Uh, in a barbershop uh, I had before I retired, I had a mixture of clientele uh, running from uh, United States congressman to uh, a guy that washed dishes in the restaurant next door. And uh, I didn't make appointments, and everyone took their turn. Uh, and uh, the president of the bank, uh, three of them, 
they all took their turn. Uh, and so did the politician. I won't mention his name. He was sitting waiting an hour and a half for his turn and uh, assimilate all of the conversation in that barbershop. I would think a politician would like having that chance to wait and lurk and listen to people and uh, well, hear his constituents. It, it surely rounded out his uh, perspective mm-hmm. on his constituencies and uh, on the general public, what they were thinking about and what they liked and disliked. Uh, so he could aim his uh, campaign uh, rhetoric uh, to uh, the demography, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and on top of that, he was a very nice guy. So Mark Twain... I think what he touched on was the uh, sort of eccentric uh, part of barbers. Uh, we, uh, I think for the most part, most of us uh, are a little vain. Uh, we promote vanity. We make our living off of vanity. Mm-hmm. And so we promote vanity. And, uh, and so uh, Mark Twain mentioned how his barber was always combing his hair in a mirror or stuff like that. And uh, we become, I think we become a little, uh, I always say, eccentric. And, uh, mm-hmm. Well, you kind of are your product in a way too, right? If you're trying to make people look good, you need to look good too, right? To make them believe you can do it? <laughs> Not only that, uh, uh, young barbers, uh, the, the best looking barber in the barbershop will have the most business. Because mm-hmm. they figure he's... He's good-looking, he'll make me good-looking, too. But when you get old, you have to depend on uh, people being loyal to you and, uh, and accustomed to you and comfortable with you. Yeah. But vanity's not all bad. Uh, I don't feel bad about that. I, I think that's what gets us up in the morning. Yeah. Uh, that's what a lot of what drives us to be successful and uh, well-liked and all those things. And, and so, hooray for vanity. <laughs> I'm all for it. Well, and hooray for barbers, right, for helping other people look their best, maybe having more successful lives. Hooray for barbers. There you go. Yeah. And your, your father was a barber as well, right? He was. He was a barber for 65 years. Wow. And uh, I was a barber for 62 years. None of my kids are barbers. I'm sort of pleased about that because there are, are limitations about being a barber. Yeah. Uh, I'm not knocking it. I, I made a, a good living at it. But we always want our children to go a little further than we, are, we did. And so I always discouraged them uh, from becoming barbers. I wanted them to be, uh, like Willie Nelson says, doctors and lawyers and stuff. Don't let your babies grow up to be barbers? Sort of like that. Yeah. And uh, uh, being a cowboy and being a barber, uh, you're sort of stuck in, a, in an economic slot uh, that may be uh, a lot of fun and colorful and rewarding and mm-hmm. uh, fulfilling and all that. But for some reason, we all want our children to be more successful than we are. Did your dad discourage you from becoming a barber? Yeah, he wanted me to be a milkman. A milkman? A milkman. Uh, uh, he saw milkmen 
as making out with all the women. And he was sort of a, a womanizer, and, uh, and he thought that was uh, the top line of life, I guess. But anyway, what else? He wanted me to be a milkman. Uh, oh, he wanted me to be a beautician. And in those days, in the 40s, uh, 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 beauticians and barbers were separate, mm -hmm. very distinctly separate occupations. And uh, m a lot of times, more often than not, you would find a barber shop right next door to a beauty shop. They call them salons now, but beauty mm -hmm. shop. And the women would go to the beauty shop and the men would go to the bar barber shop. And, uh, and that distinction, uh, I think, was, uh, was a gender thing that was part of the culture and maybe still is. I'm not sure about it. I know my barbershop was that way. I, I tried to discourage women from becoming in my place because I ran kind of a social club there, and, and uh, men are a little uncomfortable uh, speaking their minds and using the language uh, they use uh, with women around. So uh, Mark, Mark Twain might have written a book about uh, uh, beauticians, but he wouldn't have been qualified because mm. he wouldn't have had an inside uh, insight on that. But and so your dad, the the Casanova, yeah, uh, he probably if if you couldn't be a milkman and get the women there, you could be a beautician and surround yourself by. I think with uh, women. I think he was following the same line of thought that uh, he wanted to make sure not only that I was wealthy, but also that I was happy. Mm. And uh, you find happiness, in his uh, point of view, uh, in a lot of uh, uh, interactions with women. Mm. The rest of it I won't talk about. Uh, what kind of interactions he was thinking about was, uh, uh, was a private matter. Anyway, he did was he, a good did guy. He, did he own a barbershop, or did he work? Uh, he, he owned uh, two or three barbershops. But he was never really all that successful hmm. uh, as a barbershop owner. Uh, as a barber, he worked in a small town barbershop. There's a writer, used to write for the Chicago Daily News, that wrote a short story called Haircut and other stories that describes barbers better than Mark Twain did. Hmm. And I'm trying to think of his name. I wish I'd have written it down. If I think about it later, I will go back to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was a monologue by a barber at a small town about what was going on uh, uh, with a customer that had come down there, a salesman from Chicago. And it was very clever. Uh, Gee, I wish I could think of his name. Oh. Well, you are, as the barber, sort of the eyes and ears of, uh, of a community, especially a small town, right? If everyone's coming through, you're, you're sort of a filter for all sorts of information. I don't know how much we filtered it. Uh, <laughs> sometimes we had to filter it because uh, I often thought that uh, a good retirement uh, fund for a barber was to have all this stuff on people. 
that they didn't want out there. Oh, sure. And when Your you're retired... Is blackmail you, material. Well, I, didn't, I don't like that word. Oh, right. I, I'm not using that word. You call them up and say, look, I have these tapes of a lot of conversations here, and I have one that we talked one day, and uh, I'm trying to get rid of them, uh, uh, storage space and all that. Yeah. And... Uh, and uh, uh, I put a lot of time and effort into this, and I would like some some remittance for them. But uh, uh, what's it worth to you? That's a nice soft sell. A, a, a nice retirement fund right there. There you go. See? I wish I'd have thought of it. But one thing that barbers do not do is talk about stuff. Uh, it would get you killed mm. sometimes. Uh, and... In the big cities, uh, a lot of murders were committed in barber shops by organized crime. We'd see a guy setting duck mm -hmm. in a barber chair. You're very vulnerable when you're in that space. Absolutely. And, uh, and close at hand, you can't miss from 30 feet or 20 feet. My barber chair was about six feet from the sidewalk. And that would make it about uh, 10, 12 feet from the car going by couldn't miss especially with shotguns and uh so there was a lot of that mm -hmm. so the, uh the last thing in the world i would want is for people that i cut their hair to think that i wasn't absolutely ethical and mm -hmm. re uh, repeating stuff i never did i never did and I don't think most barbers do. Oh, well, probably, especially not if, uh, if it was dangerous to do I so. I never thought know? of it too much that way until I retired, and then I got to thinking about this retirement fund thing, and it brought to mind all this other stuff, that all these, uh, how nervous some of these people might be about me just out there walking around. Yeah. And it makes, still makes me a little nervous. I have to admit uh, that there are things I know about people that I'm never going to repeat. And they know I know. Yeah. And that's enough to make you wake up now and then during the night and uh, uh, promise yourself to watch what you say. Yeah, it gives you reason to lean into uh, senility a little bit. Or at least uh, uh, affect a memory loss. Yeah. You, you can do that. It's very selective if it needs to be. Yeah, and uh, do it quite often so people will become accustomed to the fact that you can't remember nothing. Or Walt can't remember nothing. And I, we'll get that out there. Let's put that word out there, yeah. Get it out there. So how much did uh, barbering change from the time your father was doing it until you uh, started as a barber? Did you see the industry change a lot in that time, or was it was it uh, were most things kind of the same? It changed very little. The only thing that changed was that barbers, in fact, uh, probably their main uh, product was shaving people mm -hmm. uh, because safety razors uh, didn't uh, happen until around night, World War One, probably. And uh, people went to the barbershop to get shaved. And most of the business they did was shaving. And they were very good at it. 
And so uh, when I uh, started barbering after World War II, uh, uh, the bar barber schools put a lot of uh, time into teaching shaving. And when I first started, I still did a lot of it. But uh, over time, uh, with safety razors and all that, they, they don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, none. Uh, very, very little of it. And I think that the reason all these old photographs you see of uh, old guys in my family, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they all had long beards because it was such a project uh, and expense to shave. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and not only that, when you get older, your skin gets thin and, and it's uh, uh, painful. So, so shaving kind of went out. But it was an art. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the measures of a barber is how sharp his razor was and how good he was at sharpening it. Now, barbers, when, it, when barbering, uh, I call it barbering, but uh, the origin of barbers was, uh, was sort of the original occupation of dentists and doctors. The doctors and the dentists branched off from barbers. But the key to it all, I think, was the, the skill in sharpening tools and sharpening razors sharpening surgical instruments uh, and all that. And so uh, the barber surgeon, they called them in, in medieval times, well, did everything except the uh, uh, social element in it, probably. I doubt if they sit around and told jokes while they were pulling teeth. They might have, but yeah. it would take a lot of self-control. But anyway, It would be hard to look forward to a visit to the barber back then. You know, whereas now it's sort of a relaxing thing, maybe. The whole uh, deal of being a barber, uh, uh, people had a completely different uh, perspective on it. But, but it, it finally evolved into a cosmetic experience. And uh, so now you have the cosmetology business. You have cosmetics involved in it. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is cosmetics. Yeah. And the same thing with barbers, a lot of it is cosmetic. A lot of it's aesthetics. They have, uh, in salons, they have estheticians, uh, not in barbershops. Uh, uh, but in, uh, in the cosmetology field, uh, they seem to have developed a whole new language. They have a language of, I, I call it marketing myself. Uh, it, it, it call, they take basic uh, procedures and put a fancy name on it, you know, and that's good marketing. That's, and that's very good marketing. Very good marketing. That happened to barbers during the 60s. They, uh, barbers started uh, uh, seeing how much more money those uh, salons were making than barber shops and and their good old boy approach to it, I started calling their barbershops hairstyling salons. Mm. They, some of them even took down a barber pole. Uh, they didn't want to be thought of as barbers, barbershops. They saw there was a lot more money in, uh, in expanding their services to incorporate some of the things that cosmetologists do. Uh, 
So they had hairstylists uh, and hair, hair, men's hairstyling saloons. And, uh, and the rest of the barbers, the traditional barbers, sort of frowned on that because it was sort of like demeaning in a sense. Uh, Seems like maybe it was diluting the, the mystique it, of the barbershop a little bit. It, right. You're right. Absolutely. Demeaning the identity that barbers had established over a long period of time and were very proud of it and very uh, uh, self-fulfilling uh, element in being a barber in a barbershop, being a discussion leader or conducting a seminar on a, a, on a, a, a folk level, uh, folk seminars, mm-hmm. uh, where people discuss things very thoroughly in a casual manner and had a lot of fun doing it. And uh, so I, I was always uh, it, I felt very fulfilled in what I did. And where did you start barbering? Where did you go to school and then start? Uh, Denver. Your career? That Denver. was all here in Denver? Yeah. I, I lived in Chicago, uh, and my dad was a barber to Palmer House in Chicago, a uh, very high-level barbershop. Mm-hmm. And I told him I was wanted to go to barber school, and he, and he frowned on it. And uh, uh, I came to Denver. I was coming here anyway. I'd been stationed in the, in the Army Air Corps here at Larry Field. And... Uh, and I came here, and, uh, and I went to barber school here. And there were two or three of them in those days. It was interesting. The barber schools are interesting. They're always on skid, low, skid row. Uh, so I, st- I go to barber school on skid row. I wind up in a barber shop on the most upscale uh, uh, street in uh, Denver, which was East Colfax, which winds up a skid row. So I went from Skid Row to uh, a clientele of people that were uh, uh, the upper crust here in town, uh, patronized the barbers on East Colfax, because East Colfax was the upscale shopping area mm-hmm. in Denver in those days. Uh, and then I was there all the time that it changed. Over time, it uh, became almost a skid row. So anyway, I, I did the whole process from rags, not to riches, but at least from rags to uh, upscale uh, clientele. And I never, ever uh, discriminated in my barbershop. And, and you'd be surprised how many millionaires would wait their turn sitting next in the waiting area mm-hmm. uh, with a bum. And the bums, uh, so-called bums, they would call them bums loosely. Uh, they call them street people now. Were an element on the street that I thought added a perspective mm-hmm. uh, to my life. And the people that came in there, too. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're watchers. They're out there on the street seeing everything, you know? Right. Did you, so when you were uh, in school, was there an apprenticeship program? Did you have to work under other barbers? How did that work? 
There was. There was a two-year apprenticeship program, and you had to do that for two years uh, before you could open your own barber shop. Uh, and I think the main uh, reason for that uh, was to control entry into the uh, into trade, to keep the supply of barber shops down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of a... Uh, uh, competition controlling device because in that two years I served as an apprentice uh, I didn't uh, learn nothing uh, I learned by somewhat by doing but I didn't learn a lot hmm. by doing I was pretty well qualified by the time I was in that barber school for six months in fact I came out of that school a better barber than a lot of old barbers that have been in business for 20, 30 years. Uh, so that apprenticeship program uh, was finally abolished, and I think for that reason. Mm-hmm. And did you, uh, when you were finished with the apprenticeship program, did you open a shop right away? Uh, no, I worked for another guy for 15 years managing a barber shop. And that was uh, at, on East Colfax? It was. It was uh, a block from where I opened my own barbershop. Uh, so I was in that barbershop working for him. He had seven barbershops here in Denver. Is it, is it a chain of barbershops that's still around today? or No, no. no. When he died, uh, it, uh, the people that ran, uh, managed those barbershops, uh, a lot of us just bought the barbershop. Mm. Uh, uh, I didn't, but... Uh, a lot of them did. And your shop was called The Uppercut, right? Right, right. Where did you come up with that name? Because that's, uh, that's, that's good marketing. That's a clever name for a barber, barber shop. I'd rather not say. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, that's a secret. I like it. <laughs> so you're, you're also a painter. Was there um, ever a point in your life when you, when you were contemplating pursuing life as a painter, like trying to make a go of it as an artist? Or... Did that seem impractical? Well, it didn't seem plausible uh, uh, to be a self-taught artist uh, of a caliber that uh, you can uh, uh, sell paintings at uh, a price where you can make a living was not feasible at all. And I had six children, Hmm. and I had to make a living. And uh, I didn't have the uh, luxury of taking a lot of chances, uh, or financially, to finance going to art school. Mm-hmm. So there was no way I was going to do that. But I did uh, paint in my barber shop, in in the back room. I had a studio in the back room, and I did become a pretty good self-taught barber. Uh, there are a few very good self-taught barbers. Uh, one of them is a friend of mine, and he invited me into his studio to work with him, mm-hmm. uh, which I did. And uh, I became a pretty pretty good barber, and uh, I mean, uh, uh, painter. A, a painter, we'll call it a barber painter. And I did a uh, show in, uh, in uh, galleries. I didn't find it something that I liked to do, but I did 
I was good enough uh, to where I did sell paintings in galleries. And I, now I try to, if I find out who bought them, I try to buy them back. Mm. And I have bought a few of them back. Really? Yeah. Wow. Uh, the one on the wall right there I bought back. Is that um, a prairie graveyard in uh, a rainstorm? Uh, it, somewhat. Uh, but uh, it's a pastel yeah. uh, of a little place uh, down out of San Luis, Colorado. And I sold it to uh, uh, one of the owners of a Westernware downtown. And when he died, uh, I went and bought bought it back from his son. Well, so and we were talking earlier about the the so-called bums. Uh, a lot of your work, um, I, I'm assuming that you were doing in the in the studio in your barbershop, was portrait. Where you did a lot of portrait work, right? And a lot of times, uh, I did a lot of portrait of street of people on the street. A mm-hmm. uh, few customers. Uh, I didn't sell them. I gave them to them. A lot of people that I thought that appealed to me in some way, I could sort of express my own feelings or my own perceptions of them better in a portrait than I could say in verbal descriptions Mm -hmm. and words, so to speak. And that's one thing I like about painting. It's a nonverbal communication uh, whereas you can, people can perceive them in a completely different way. They sort of enter your consciousness uh, through a different channel, to a different avenue, so mm-hmm. to speak. Just a minute, I'm going to show you one. Can okay. I get up? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. These guys had a very interesting look about them. Yeah, this guy kind of looks like uh, Neil Cassidy or Jack Kerouac. Mm-hmm. Can, can you imagine doing a portrait of a banker? That uh, wouldn't be that fun. Uh, no fun at all. No fun at all. Uh, and I did a whole series of these uh, portraits of street people. I call them street people, loosely. I did a whole series of them. I, I think I, uh, there were about, I think, 10 or 15 of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all had this character about them. Uh, so the Denver Post came in and did a, uh, an article on them. They didn't uh, print all of them, but they printed two or three of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's what I like. There's something about people that are, are extremely interesting. And the most interesting ones are not... The successful ones. No. The most interesting ones uh, have lived a an active life. I use the word active, but they have led an interesting life. Mm-hmm. A lot of them grew up maybe in poverty, uh, maybe in deprivation. Uh, maybe some of them are not blessed with high IQs. Uh, a lot of the alcoholics on the street, I think... Some of them are not severely mentally ill, but enough to handicap them in the competition uh, that's demanded in life mm-hmm. to become successful. So they fell through the cracks, so to speak, and they wind up living a life in a subculture. 
So I find sometimes that the subculture is much more interesting than the mainstream culture. Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. When you watch how they live and how they talk and how they think, their lives have more interest than the guy that uh, has a degree in geometry or a degree in uh, this or that, uh, and his mind has been well-trained. And uh, sometimes his soul has been left behind in the process. Uh, These people have something about them that you want to know more about them. Mm-hmm. You want to know what, ha- what what's this guy all about. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, how with a painting, a lot of times you can capture things that aren't easily expressed verbally. Uh, and it made me think of, well, Greg Lopez, the, the columnist for the Rocky Mountain News, wrote an article that I read about Bobby Bruchiers, who was one of the street people that you painted. And it's a great piece of writing. I think, yeah, you're, I think you're featured in it. Greg wrote one about Bobby. He also wrote one about my barber shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he did one about Bobby that I thought was really extremely perceptive yeah, about a guy that had become a person, uh, his persona. He had a wonderful persona. He had taken the English language and added words that are not in the dictionary. He invented words that seemed to fit the situation better than the words in the dictionary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and Lopez uh, I put all those words in that article, uh, Bobby's vocabulary, and uh, all about him. It was a wonderful verbal portrait it was. Well, I think yeah. it captured, too, like a lot. I think sometimes with people who are on the street, they're often, like in his case, seem like very intelligent, almost too intelligent for their own good. Like they're, they, they're too sensitive and too intelligent to, to exist in a kind of a... They see the world for what it is, and, and it's like really hard for them to assimilate. And his, I felt like his article did a really good job of capturing that, but what you were saying, when you look at the... I've seen some of the paintings you've done of him. It, uh, you capture something that isn't in, in that piece. There's like almost like sort of a, the kindness in him. You can kind of see that in his eyes. And I don't, I don't feel like that maybe translates as well in, a, in an article. It's something you kind of have to experience maybe through painting. There's something about them that attract your interest. Mm-hmm. You become immediately deeply interested in that person. And now... Uh, And I think that being on the street, like I was for 62 years, uh, six feet from the sidewalk and watching those people go by, and uh, sometimes they would come in uh, briefly, that the portrait worked for me, and uh, the writing worked for Greg Lopez. Mm -hmm. But it's the same thing, in a way. And, And a lot of these people on the street, alcoholics, Mm-hmm. started out uh, with a deficit. Uh, I think there's a degrees of mental illnesses. Now, psychiatrists categorize all these illnesses and put labels on them. But I think there's degrees of those things. In, in the, uh, the work of barbering that you did, did, did you find that um, to be uh, an artistic outlet at all for you? 
Well, somewhat. Uh, not like painting, but there's so, somewhat. There's some aesthetics in the old traditional uh, barber shops and barbers. There was not too much room for aesthetics because everyone wore the same hairstyle. Mm -hmm. And your ability to do that one hairstyle, there was not much uh, of a demand uh, for <coughs> for any kind of aesthetics. And you got good at what that particular thing. So there was not much creativity involved in it. But there was some satisfaction in uh, making a guy look better than he did when he came in. Mm -hmm. Looking better meant to have that particular hairstyle done in a very good way. So all the movie stars wore that hairstyle. All the politicians wore that hairstyle. Uh, and it was cut and dried. Mm -hmm. And I was good at it. It doesn't take a lot of aesthetics. It takes a lot of hand-eye coordination or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, there's geometry to the hair and like the way it lays and moves, and there's so many different hair types. You kind of have to have a well, knowledge to incorporate some of that too, right? Not really. No? <laughs> uh, you had to work with cowlicks. Okay. A guy's got a cowlick that won't lay down there, so you have to leave it a little longer so it'll lay down uh, flat top stuff like that. It was mostly skill. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really don't think that there was a lot of uh, aesthetical demands on barbers. When you've written articles too about what a barber pole itself represents and means, and, and I think one of the articles talked about was it in Greeley where someone had stolen a barber pole, and to you that was sort of a, a slight against the whole community. Am I right? That article was a bit of a Mark Twain exaggeration. Yeah, it had it had that hyperbole uh, to it. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, yeah, hyperbole. Uh, that that was in Fort Collins, and uh, there's a college there in Fort Collins, and uh, finally some college kid admitted doing it. But anyway, I enjoyed doing the article because I think that uh, it made people aware that barbershops are an in integral part in our social lives and that they have contributed a lot to our society uh, and they represent uh, uh, Americana, so to speak. They are a symbol of Americana. Uh, there may be others, but I think that the barber pole is the best symbol that I can think of of community life, especially in small towns. And in Denver, uh, you can't hardly find one. Mm -hmm. uh, but you still find them in small towns all over the country, especially in the Midwest. Uh, black barbershops are still doing well. They have not disappeared. I think those, those people realize the value of the barbershop. They even made a movie called Barbershop. And, uh, and not only that, uh, you see, I'm on TV uh, almost every day. You will see uh, a commercial for insurance or whatever in a barbershop. They still use the barbershop mm -hmm. uh, uh, promoting things because they know that, uh, that barbershops do represent uh, a deep-seated feeling of integrity 
and community spirit. It's an icon of American life. But uh, like uh, Ray Oldenberger said in that book, they're disappearing. Those places are all disappearing. Uh, and it's too bad. Mm. But that uh, passes for progress. Uh, and like a lot of other things, uh, I'll take regress. Uh, progress is not all good. Uh, it's like the wind, you're not going to stop it. Uh, but uh, we lose something mm. in it. Very true. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, especially here in Denver, but there's kind of a resurgence in, in barbering and barber shops. A lot of people are opening like old-style old barber shops. I, I think on the surface that that appears to be true, but uh, uh, it's more of a retro mm -hmm. movement, part of a retro movement, uh, but they're sort of pseudo-barbershops. Uh, uh, the ones uh, that I've seen uh, are uh, a retro, mm -hmm. and the element of... Uh, that I've spoke of it doesn't exist in any of them that I know of. Well, how could I say this? I don't want to be uh, critical of, of them, but uh, I think that they represent a. I think that young people prefer retro to the real thing. Hmm. The real thing uh, won't make it. Yeah. Uh, the retro does fine. So I think there's something in, in, in the consumer market that someone tapped in to the appeal of, uh, that barbershops have to the general public, uh, tapped into it, and went retro with it. Mm -hmm. But those barbershops you, you're thinking of have no, no, uh, none of the things that I talked about or Mark Twain talked about, uh, that barbershops rep actually represent. The black barbershops are still what they've always been and still serve the community in the same way. Mm. Uh, but the retro ones are different. They're corporately owned, some of them. Uh, and uh, they're into selling a lot of products, uh, a lot of consumerism. It's not the same, no. So do you think that barbershops are just destined to kind of fade away? They already have. In yeah. Denver, uh, there are very few of them left. They're always, I think there's still, there's still a place for them, but not, not to the extent there was by far. They're, uh, on Colfax, where I had my barbershop, from Broadway to Colorado Boulevard, there probably was seven or eight barbershops. Uh, when I retired, there was one, two, nine, mm -hmm. and another guy that opened one that had worked for me. The rest of them were gone. But since I retired, I see a few of them, uh, small ones, uh, well, no, the, the black barber shop was still going strong. That one, and uh, mine, and uh, there's about three. And on Broadway, from uh, Colfax, 
to almost, almost Littleton. I think there was, there, there was only one left out by Hamden. Uh, so they, they disappeared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were decimated, actually. Do you think that, because um, it seems now, um, and I guess I'm speaking as a, the owner of a, of a hair salon. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, when, when my wife, your granddaughter, Nikki, and I uh, this, were talking about the place that we wanted open, we kind of wanted it, Not, I don't think the word barbershop ever came up, but we wanted it to be the kind of place where people could be very comfortable and have, like, really good conversations. Um, you know, and I've always seen her role as a stylist in as being partially kind of like a therapist, you know, people, I think people feel extremely vulnerable in that position, like in your chair, you know, in, in a stylist chair, um, they're, they're kind of open and vulnerable in a way that they normally aren't. And it seems like she provides a dual services at, at, to say the least. So I wonder if you think that some, some of that community, what a barbershop brought to a community, do you think it, it can kind of morph and exist in, in other settings? Well, the barbershop uh, persona of the barbershops will never be the same. But I think that what uh, Nikki uh, and what hairstylists individually and barbers individually do that people neglect altogether, and they should be paid more for it, it's not just uh, about hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do, and what Nikki does, and all the all the people that uh, and salons and barbershops do for people, is they build their morale. Mm. We are morale builders, uh, Nikki. Builds people's morale, along with doing, making them look better, along with the aesthetics of that. We are morale builders. That's what we do. Yeah. And that part of it never gets recognized. Uh, even the barbers don't recognize, or 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 or, or the people doing it don't realize it. But if you analyze it and you look at it, you see that what happens when you sit down in Nikki's salon, she's going to make you look better. But when you leave, you're going to feel better about yourself. Uh, She's going to skillfully uh, work with your personality. She's going to make you feel better when you leave than you did when you came in. And she does that uh, periodically over long periods of time. And so what she's doing for people is beyond uh, a commercial value. Uh, And they never get recognized for that. That was very true. It was very well put. Um, So you mentioned that none of your children uh, pursued barbering. Um, When... Do you remember uh, if you had a reaction when Nikki decided that she wanted to become a, a hairstylist? And I was indifferent to it. I, I, that's none of my business about what my grandchildren want to do. I, my dad didn't want me to be a barber. He wanted me to be a milkman. 
Uh, I didn't pay any attention to him. I did what I wanted to do. And uh, if, if one of my kids had decided to be a barber, I'd have said, well, good, go for it. You know, uh, yeah. I don't feel a connection with Nikki on that on that level. Mm. Uh, I mean, I was in the hair business. She was in the hair business. Uh, it's a meaningless thing to me. Yeah. Uh, she might feel some some way about it one way or the other. I don't know. But uh, to me, we all, we all do what we do. I mean, I guess for me, I, I uh, grew up going to get my hair cut in a beauty salon uh-huh. with my mom. But to me, it was always a thrill. It was like one of my favorite things because uh-huh. I got to sit and listen in on adult conversations. Uh-huh. You know, they had, uh, sometimes they had Playboy magazine that I could uh-huh. try and sneak uh-huh. a peek at. So uh-huh. it was, yeah, and there was kind of this cool sense of, of learning and community. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I guess maybe that's kind of what drew me to the industry. Sure. Yeah. Well, the industry describes it all. People that are in the hair serving people's uh, need for uh, uh, having their hair look good and looking well themselves. Huh? Uh, it's an industry, mm-hmm. uh, and it changes along with everything else. But I do think that the disappearance of uh, the traditional barbershop, along with a lot of other traditions, uh, uh, was a great loss uh, uh, to the male population. Uh, it served uh, a, a need people have to interact with each other uh, in a way that's uh, civilized, uh, class neutral, yeah, uh, and, and uh, discuss things freely uh, in a class neutral environment uh and i think we've lost something in it well one other thing that i i uh, think about with hairstyling is that it's probably especially when you think about what we've been talking about that there's the the technical aspect of it and then there's also the you know the morale building sort of intangible aspect of it it'll be one of the last jobs that technology can replace you know like factory jobs are disappearing because they can build machines to do it uh, but uh, hairstyling, I think, will always require a uh, human touch. I think it's ingrained in, uh, in, the, in the species. It goes with primate behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, anthropologists uh, claim that it's a primate uh, characteristic that's ingrained in our behavior, and that grooming in itself is a part of primate, uh, the makeup. Of, of the species. Mm-hmm. And so in one form or another, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, they are not going to stop us uh, from uh, uh, looking after our grooming uh, or going to the bathroom uh, or having sex uh, and all the things are, are integral uh, to our species. It's it's not going to go away, no. Yeah, well, yeah, and that, and that experience is is intimate in a way that's not really sexualized. You can actually exchange uh, touch with somebody, and there aren't like strings attached. You know, it is just an exchange of energy, and and it's a soothing thing. Well put, well put. 
it is intimate. And, and intimate, uh, as Oldenburg and his book said, what, what those places that are social in nature do is they serve our need for intimacy with each other. Uh, the social aspects of it uh, are uh, social, but they're also intimate. Uh, the relationship with clients, for instance, is intimate. And over a long period of time, I, I had several customers when I retired uh, that I had cut their hair for 54 years. Mm-hmm. I knew those guys better than their neighbors knew them. And those guys talked to me uh, as a close friend and uh, shared uh, things with me and felt comfortable in doing it. And the intimacy is part of what we need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where the morale building comes in, too. Your client, client shares their problems with you uh, that they wouldn't tell anybody else. And you kind of help them uh, deal with it the best you can. and uh, You don't set yourself up as an expert or anything like that. But uh, the best therapy, I think, is listening to them. And they unload on you. And and so I think it's expansive uh, for barbers and, and the customers, too. Well, this, it was something that, uh, as the, the husband of a hairstylist, it's kind of embarrassing how long it took me to figure this out, but that at the end of the day, she needs to, like, sit and not be talked to and just have, like, 10 minutes just to, to kind of zone out. And, and I think the reason for that is she spent her whole day, like you said, you know, you're sharing energy with people, and it's, there's such an intensity to it, especially if you know them very well and are hearing about their lives. So you're, you're interacting with them verbally. You're absorbing the energy from their head. I mean, it's like a very intense experience that you're then repeating throughout the day with different people and kind of different variables and outcomes. Did you notice that by the end of a long day with uh, guests that you were kind of fried in a way? Or I never noticed it. I'm glad Nikki did uh, because I had never thought of that. Uh, but I know that uh, you... Uh, and add, that, add the noise and, uh, of the street and... Uh, and uh, and the intensity of the street uh, to that, and uh, it's quite a lot uh, mm-hmm. to absorb during the day. And, and, and I know that's true. I know that when I went home, uh, I, I, I wish uh, that I'd had a little more time to myself, but I had six children. Yeah. Uh, and my wife had her problems there today that... Uh, I would help her with, and she would, uh, her and I would discuss the problems that come up with the family, and what this kid did, what that did kid, and uh, what they should do, and and all, all of that family life, the dynamics of family life. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I love solitude. <laughs> I, in my retirement. I certainly love solitude. Was that difficult for you at all, though, when you retired? Were you, were you ready to have that solitude, or was, was there an adjustment t- period? I was too busy to notice. Yeah. 
Uh, when you're caught up in something, you really don't realize what you're caught up in. Once it was gone, though, once uh, you were retired and you didn't have that those daily interactions uh, with people in your chair, was did that leave a void, or was it something you were ready for, do you think? Well, what, what it left, actually, was a loss of friendships. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, just the conversational part of it, I kind of enjoyed uh, reading more. I got into, uh, I joined a philosophy group. I got into stuff uh, that I wanted to do. But what I do miss is you know someone for 52 years, 54 years, and for every two, I had one, one of these guys, I cut his hair once a week. Yeah. And most of them in the old days was ritual. Uh, two, three weeks, everybody got a haircut. So I know this, knew those people very well for a long period of time. And they were friendships. They became friendships. And so, so when I retired, I lost all my friends. Because when you're that occupied uh, with people on that level, you don't make outside friends. I have very few friends outside the barbershop. I was too busy too caught up in everything, uh, close friends outside the barbershop, none. I, I would say none. But the, my, uh, my customers at some point became close friends. And uh, you miss them. Yeah. Is there anything that you think, you know, people who have hair salons or, or hairstylists and other guys, is there something integral that they should try and uh, take from the barbershop? That's a difficult question. It's hard for me to visualize or comprehend exactly what goes on in salons. But from what I see from the outside looking in is the permanence uh, involved in society during that time. There's the permanence part is missing in almost every area. It's not just traditional barbershops. The permanence of things. It started with uh, consumerism and planned uh, obsolution. And that is part of the consumer society we live in. And that in itself discourages the kind of environment and the kind of mindset uh, and a psychology that existed uh, in traditional barbershops. Uh, Mark Twain's view of barbershops, that uh, book I told you, Haircut, mm-hmm. and other stories. That atmosphere uh, would be hard to create yeah. because that requires time. It, it, it evolves over time. It, it evolves permanence of things. And permanence uh, is antiquated. Uh, it's change has become the mode of the day. Change uh, is part of consumerism. So the permanence of things is what uh, kept it together, mm-hmm. held it together. In small towns, or small towns still exist, 
which is rare. Mm -hmm. But people left the small towns and built big shopping centers around the small towns. And the old barber shop is stuck in the old part of town. The shopping center has corporate hair places. Uh, there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. There's uh, great clips. Uh, I think sport clips. There's all kind of clips. Yeah, anything but you can add to clips. Anything, yeah, it's clips. But they're all corporate, corporately owned places that are not integral uh, to, the, to the town, uh, to the old part of town. They're integral to the expanded part of town. But the permanence of it all is lost, and I don't think will ever be restored. Mm. The people that live in the uh, old parts of town are old people. Uh, old barbers, old barber shops, and old people. And uh, I know something about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 90 years old. I know something about that. Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, they were still delivering milk uh, with horse-drawn wagons. Uh, Maybe that'll come back. Everyone's into retro these days. Well, they, it may as a novelty. Yeah. But there's a lot of difference between a novelty and the real thing. Yeah. You can't, you can't go back to the garden. We left the garden. Sure did. Uh, we might have burned it down. We, we, uh, we burned, yeah, well, we used insectides uh, on the vegetation and killed the snakes and uh, put on clothes. Then we put on better clothes and more expensive clothes. And, uh, and then we needed haircuts. And, and, and then we, yeah, well, uh, uh, the, the big, uh, the big hair st haircut story was Samson. Mm -hmm. That is a metaphor for what Carl Menninger, the psychiatrist, the head of the Menninger Clinic, had to say about hair uh, being projection of the genitals, that sexuality and hair were connected. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he used, I think, that analogy with Samson and Delilah. It's uh, an anal analogous to uh, a castration. And that uh, a lot of, I'm not going to get into it, it's complicated, but a lot of the patients that he had uh, pulled their hair compulsively. Uh, and it had to do with, with guilt with women mm. uh, over masturbation. Uh, I'm not quoting, I don't, this is not a verbatim quote, a quote mm -hmm. uh, by Miniker, uh, but it's what I remember about his book. Uh, uh, he wrote two. Uh, the one was Man Against Himself, it was about alcoholism, and, and another one was The Human Mind, very good books to read. Uh, but uh, there is a deep-seated connection, according to him, between what people do with their hair and their sexuality. Yeah, hair communicates. Yeah, yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, so I, I had a psychiatrist as a customer. <laughs> he was uh, uh, ahead of the uh, psychiatric department. Uh, at a clinic here in town, and uh, I was talking to him about this Menneker's book, 
and <laughs> he said, what does that make you? <laughs> Here I am standing there uh, uh, lopping off people's hair all day. Yeah. And what's my motive? You're the castrator. <laughs> that seems that yeah. way. And it, uh, it set me to thinking about my own motives. Uh, <laughs> uh, am I on some kind of a power trip here? <laughs> well, Could be. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> Could be. Well, thank you, Walt. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I enjoyed venting my, uh, yeah. my past, I guess you call it. Hair, Hair, Hair was recorded at Needle in the Hay Salon in Denver's Cherry Creek North neighborhood and was produced in partnership with Natch 9000. Visit us online at needleinthehaysalon.com and follow us on the social medias at Needle in the Hay Salon, which is where we will post updates about future episodes of this podcast. Mm-hmm.